thankful to be able to bring you the second part of chapter one in Peter this week. Thank you to Mike for the opportunity to continue to expound on this precious book. Uh, many ways we can relate to the hearers, to the original readers of First Peter, and we're going to be able to glean from that this morning. So First uh, Peter 1 is where we're at. And I'd like to start by just reading 1 Peter 1. I'm going to back up to verse 3 just to give us that context that we were in last week. So I'll start reading at verse 3, and we're going to go through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make your word clear, that my words would only serve to echo, to try to make clear what you have already said. We have nothing but your word, Lord, and we feed on this. We thank you that Peter wrote these words uh, to believers and that you wrote these words to uh, believers in present day uh, to encourage us, to exhort us to press on to Christ, our living hope. May he receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. We pray this in his name. Horatio Spafford, some of you may know this name, famous hymn writer, and uh, I think when we get to the end, you'll you'll recognize the hymn, but he was a prominent lawyer. He lived in New York City in 19, or I'm sorry, in 1828. He lived in, uh, grew up in New York, but lived in Chicago with his five children and his wife, and he was a prominent lawyer, uh, very successful, big career, lots of money, lots of investments in the city, and it wasn't long before their family was struck with much grief. Uh, they lost his first son at age four. And then in 1871, the Chicago fire broke out, destroying almost all of his investments, all of his properties completely crushed. And after that, started to recover, uh, he decided to plan a vacation for his family. So 1873, he buys boat tickets uh, for England. He went ahead and sent his wife and four kids on ahead in a ship called the Villa du Har. And halfway across the ocean, the ship was struck by another iron vessel and sunk within 12 minutes. 226 people lost their lives, including all four of his daughters on the ship, ages 11 to two. And then imagine the grief. His wife made it through 
made it to England and telegrammed two words, saved, alone. And that's what he got. Immediately, he crossed the Atlantic to be with his wife. And while he was by himself, the captain summoned him up to the top of the deck as they were crossing the spot where his kids sank to the bottom of the ocean. And he said, this is the spot uh, where, your, where your loved ones were lost. And it is at that moment, it is said, that he returned to the cabin and penned the words to one of our favorite, most cherished hymns of today. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What an amazing testimony of this believer and this precious brother in Christ. Can these words be said of your life and my life today? I pray they can. And we're going to see how that can be so, even amidst the greatest tragedy. What anchored this believer, this precious brother? What anchored his soul? This is what Peter is going to expound to us today. 1 Peter 4.19, um, we, we visited this last week is really the, the thesis statement. I like to read that again because really all of 1 Peter is summed up in this main purpose. It says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And this beautifully sums up Peter's purpose in writing to these believers. So let's look then uh, at verse 6. In verse 6, where we'll pick up from last week. And what I want you to, to really realize in this immediate context, he starts in this. Uh, many translations in this. In this is going to refer to everything that came before. So just to remind you and uh, maybe jog your memory last week, uh, what, what did we talk about before? What did Peter exhort his believers, his main purpose was reminding believers that we have an anchored hope. We have a living hope in his words. And that God is the one who gives, if you look in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to new life. He gives life. He guarantees that life you, uh, and guards it. You see that in verse 4, kept in heaven for you, guarded by the word of his power through faith. And that's verse 5. And then he guarantees a future salvation. So he gives new life. He guards present tense. He gave new life. He guards it. And now he guarantees a future hope. Brothers and sisters, what an exhortation. This is what Paul is building on here. Uh, we have past, present, and future been hemmed in by Christ Jesus alone. And what, that is a precious truth that we are banking on. So in this, verse 6... Peter is building on that. In this you rejoice. This is our joy. And now Peter takes a little aside. So in most translations he's saying though, or you see a transition. And so in verses 6 to 9 we're going to see a transition here from future glorification to I understand what you're going through in the immediate. Peter essentially is boiling it down to and saying I know that you're suffering and here's what that suffering is going to produce. So 6 to 9, his main purpose is to exhort believers in their suffering to look forward to that future salvation. 
And so we're going to unpack that a little bit here. So the first thing that I do want to look at in verse 6 is the divine prescription for grievous trials. This may sound a little awkward, but the first thing we see here, though now for a little while, for a little while, is that grievous trials are temporary. Now, when, when Peter says a little while here, he's not trying to downplay their, their suffering. Surely we know that. Uh, because he uses the word right afterwards, grievous. This is the same word that Jesus used in Gethsemane to the point of, of shedding tears of blood. So Peter is certainly not saying, oh, just get over it. It's just a little while. That's not what he's intending here. Peter is saying, in view of eternity, in view of eternity, this is very short. And he reminds us of this in, ver- in chapter 2. We're not going to turn there, but famous passage. How short is our life? It's a flower that in the summer blooms and then quickly is dead. It's a, it's a mist. It's a vapor that rises in the morning as we see fog rise in the morning. And then it's gone when the sun comes out. That's how quick our life is. You can picture, I've seen an analogy of uh, a long rope. Uh, picture the rope that you would get at Lowe's, a 100-foot rope. And you have a little tiny red line on the end of that rope, just the size of a matchstick. And that rope goes on, and obviously eternity is longer than a 100-foot rope. <laughs> but the matchstick, that little red dot on the tip of the line, is our life here on Earth. Gone. And that's what Peter is reminding us of. Though for a little while, even if our suffering lasts for our whole lifetime, it is a little while. And that's what Peter is reminding them of. Grievous trials are not only temporary, but they are necessary. And I really want to hone in on this because as you look at the structure of the passage, the necessity of trials really is a culmination of this passage. And so the necessity of trials. Peter is not saying this as in trials are accidents that sometimes happen on our path through life. Although I'm guilty of this, I think uh, many fall into this, we tend to see trials or, or suffering as inconveniences. Someone goes through a trial, oh that's unfortunate. Or, or my, my language reflects this, right? Oh, that's, I'm sorry, that's unfortunate. Um, that's unlucky. And while these things, we can call them bad, and we should call them bad, it's part of a sin-stained world that we live in, God is using and even ordains these trials to be necessary. Peter uses the words here, if necessary, and that doesn't mean that, oh, they might be necessary. He's begging the question, they are necessary. So what does that mean for you and I? Uh, we see... In many other places, we don't, uh, we're not going to turn there, but if you write these down, I would encourage you to look at this. 221, uh, 1 Peter 221, 317. We see that trials are according to God's will, and 419 that we just read, those who suffer according to whose will? God's will. And so what we're seeing here is that trials are necessary. Trials are necessary. And I want to tease this out a little bit. Uh, what's the opposite of necessary? Unnecessary. Um, what, would, what would it mean if our trials were unnecessary? I just kind of want to go down the road that Peter is 
asking them to go down by, by asking it a question. What if, what if trials were unnecessary? Well, if trials were unnecessary, we would have to either, we have two pillars, God's sovereignty and God's goodness, right? Now, there are many other attributes, but we rest on God's sovereignty and God, God's goodness. If our trials were unnecessary, we would either be acknowledging that God is sovereign. He does control all things, but he's not good. Or we would be acknowledging that God is good, but he's not sovereign. That somehow these things are out of his control. And Peter doesn't leave any room for either of those categories. He says, our trials are divinely appointed to the exact dosage that we need. There is nothing superfluous that we'll experience that's beyond God's ordained grace. And our trials will not be any less than we need. They are necessary. They are necessary. What an exhortation to you and I, because so often I need that reminder. <laughs> when I'm experiencing anything related to suffering, Peter essentially says, as a loving surgeon makes precise lacerations for an intended objective, so God makes lacerations for an ultimate purpose. And we're going to see that purpose in the next verse. So the divine purpose of grievous trials, verse 7. While the first two reminders that we got may answer the questions that we all ask when we're in trials, I think one of the, one of the questions that our minds often goes to is what if? When something bad happens, isn't that a natural human response? What if I did this? What, what if? But God doesn't leave any categories for what if. We learn that trials are ordained and they're necessary. Uh, we often ask how long, and he's already answered that. Uh, we just saw trials are temporary. They're just for this life. In this, he answers why, which is another question that plagues believers when we're struck with trials. So the divine purpose of grievous trials. We see this here. Let me just read verse 7 again. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word genuineness here uh, is a very unique word. Uh, it's kind of, you think of it as an authentication or a provenness. Um, this is essentially, uh, Peter is saying or reminding believers that uh, our faith it needs tested, it needs refined. And he uses the analogy of gold here. Um, so let's, let's just explore that analogy a little bit. Uh, did a little bit of uh, research on the process of gold refining because uh, very interestingly, this region, remember we're talking about present day Turkey, uh, was the epicenter in about 500 BC of gold refining. Uh, Laodicea, um, or I'm sorry, Lydia um, is right in that region. And that is right where the center that they found a lot of archeological evidence of gold refining, some of the first processes of refining gold was in this region that he's writing to believers in right now. So I'm sure from their heritage, they would have been very familiar with this analogy, which is probably why Peter pulls this out here. He is saying something that's familiar to them so that they can liken it to their faith. So what is he saying specifically about their faith then? Well, we know uh, from the process, just a little bit of gold refining, 
Uh, first, it's a long process. Um, and I know we just said a little while, but he's saying not in scope of eternity here. Uh, gold refining is a painstaking process that requires constant attention of the refiner. Uh, the refiner cannot take their eyes off. They have to watch it for the melting point. They have to watch it. In fact, the melting point is 1,948 degrees of gold. It's very hot. And anytime you find gold in the wilderness, it's actually integrated with silver. Um, so they have to get off the impurities. They would actually heat the gold to a certain degree. The silver would be drawn out into clay. They had two pieces of clay, one on top and one on bottom. And that silver through a long process would be drawn out and what was left was pure gold. And then at the end, and this is where the analogy is getting to, what they would do is they would test the gold itself for its quality. And to do this, they would take what they know to be pure gold and they would scrape it on a rock. And then the gold that's been refined, they would scrape right next to it to see how it compares to the true or pure gold. This is the picture that we get of faith here. So if you look back at the passage, the tested genuineness of your faith. Peter is saying, as gold is refined, your faith is refined through trial. The fire, the, the heat of trials in this life are producing an end result that is purification and an ultimate testing. The word to, may be found here, may be found, always refers to the last days. And so we see an ultimate picture of, of preparing to meet our maker face to face and being prepared and refined by these trials so that our faith ultimately is looking like Christ's sanctification. What a beautiful picture of the result of our trials. And the, the emphasis, the last thing I want to say here is the emphasis is less on sanctification here, though that is true. The emphasis here is on the testing. It's on judgment. It's on the ultimate judgment day when we will sit before Jesus. And it says, what is the end result? The result is the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple takes on this, but I think the most natural way to read praise glory and honor in this context is that it's referring to the reward of believers. The reward of believers. We receive praise and glory and honor because we're in Christ. We are co-heirs with him. We are receiving what is due him. And then ultimately we see in Revelation, I don't think this is the immediate picture here, but we ultimately see that that praise and glory and honor, will, our crowns will be tossed back at Christ's feet and that he will ultimately receive. We will enjoy both reciprocal praise, honor, glory from him and to him and him to us. And it's a beautiful picture of the end of time. A beautiful picture of the end of time. So the divine purpose. Any comments or questions on that so far? It. I feel like it's it's a it's a great passage to ponder. It's a hard passage to preach to a brother or sister mm. who's going through a trial. I feel like it's 
that opportunity to sound like one of Job's comforters if I'm not careful. <laughs> right. So yeah. any thoughts uh, yeah. on that? I think, and this is just off the top of my head, but I think after reading this, we have to start with verses 3 through 5. Um, I think if you jump into this, I think you're right. I think if you jump into, you know, it's just a little while, it's this, it's that. Um, what, is he, what does he focus on first? It's new birth. It's the living hope of Jesus Christ. And it's God's guarantee of future salvation. So I guess my thought and my exhortation, just kind of knowing where Peter starts, is that I would, I would start there. And then maybe as I hear about their trials or what they're going through, then start to unpack those specific truths. But that's a really, really good word, good question. Yeah. Yeah, great. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, so let's transition here from, from verse 7 because uh, Peter is going to make an end point. I'm going to kind of wrap 8 and 9 into into one, uh, because I think it's one major message, and all of this obviously is one message that Peter is trying to get across. But the last thing that we see is a divine portrait of saints who are in the midst of grievous trials. So what is a saint, what is a believer, what, what do you and I, when we're suffering, um, a friend, as, as you just pointed out, what is a friend who is a brother or sister in Christ, what do they look like when they're suffering? Um, Peter kind of hashes that out here. Um, he takes Jesus Christ, which often happens with any, Paul does this all the time, he can't even mention the, the name Jesus Christ without going on a, a two-paragraph parentheses, right? Um, so Peter similarly takes at the revelation of Jesus Christ and then starts to expound that. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And so we see the first character or quality of a saint who is suffering is faith-filled love in Christ Jesus. This may seem like a really basic point, but it is the heart, it's the, it's the beating of all of our hearts. Anyone who is bought by Christ loves Christ. And that's what we see here. The word agapate in Greek is indicative, not imperative here. He's saying, this is what you're demonstrating. Somehow Peter got word, either through letters or uh, messengers, of these believers in Turkey who were exhibiting Christ-like love and faith and joy while they were going through their suffering. He's exhorting them. He's saying, this is good what I see in you. Keep going. I see your love for Christ. Keep going. He's exhorting them. He's acknowledging that Peter saw Christ, the risen Christ. Right? We said that last week. Peter got to see his scars. He got to eat breakfast with him. Uh, Peter had physical evidence, but he's acknowledging that they don't have that physical evidence, and yet they love him. And aren't we all in the same category? <laughs> uh, we do not see Christ physically, and yet we love them. We love him. We have the Spirit, and the believers also have the Spirit here. Um, this is a small aside, but we're, we'll be there in John. Christ actually said to the disciples, it is good that I go. It's for your benefit that I am not present because I'm sending the helper, I'm sending the spirit. And so we're seeing that though he's not present, though you do not see him, you love him. 
And that is a, a great comfort and a great exhortation. Thomas Schreiner goes on here to comment on joy, and that's what we see next. Uh, believers are joyful because suffering is the pathway to godliness that passes the test on the last day. And because suffering results in eschatological salvation, verse 9. And so we're culminating to that point. We see that believers are marked by love. We see that they're also marked by inexpressible joy. Now the word inexpressible here, Peter loves to use words that aren't used anywhere else, which makes it very hard to interpret. Um, and this is one of those, inexpressible. It's not used really anywhere else other than outside the Bible context. But what we gather from this word is that there are no words to describe this joy. There is no word in the lexicon of Greek that he could come up with that describes how joy-filled these believers are. And that is amazing. That is really amazing considering the trials that they were experiencing. Remember we said last week, people were being burned alive in Rome. Uh, this is the persecution that was filtering down to these believers. This wasn't just some hangnail trial, you know, just a, a small cut. Uh, this was persecution. This was the worst of worst. And yet, they have inexplicable, inexplicable joy. Inutterable is another translation. The results, or why do they have that joy is what we should ask. Or what is that joy in? And we see that in verse 9. Inexplicable joy, filled with glory. And the picture here is of the last day. Obtaining or receiving the outcome of your salvation, the sal or the outcome of your faith, rather, the salvation of your souls. So lastly, we see their joy is rooted all the way back to verse 3 in future salvation, in living hope. Where is Christ at this moment? Christ is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, living. We've said this before, but all of, our, all of our salvation, all of our hope hinges on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ was not raised from the dead, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. If that did not happen, we would be grieving without hope. Christ is seated in the heavenlies, and he says here, the ultimate joy obtaining or receiving the outcome of your faith is, is the salvation of your souls. It's being reunited with your Savior. It's appearing before him at the end of all things, being refined by fire, living a suffering life as exiles. Remember, he started the letter like that, as exiles, and now realizing that your joy is rooted in that moment when you will see Christ face to face and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. What a great reward. I can't think of anything better. We desire to please our master because we love our master. And that is what these believers surely were looking forward to. Can this be said of you and I today as we experience our suffering, that we realize that it's necessary, that it is temporary, that it is producing an outcome that is favorable, an outcome that ultimately we will stand before our Creator, purified because of Christ's blood and His righteousness placed on us? Is that where our hope is even this morning? Peter reminds them 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The Gentiles would have been astounded at this. They said, me? A sinner, a Gentile? What, what are you talking about, Peter? They're rejoicing because they've been invited into this family, and they're receiving the outcome of their faith, which is the salvation of their souls. And so, ultimately, I pray and hope that as, as we take these words, uh, we're all comforted. Uh, as we ask the questions that anyone suffering asks, what if this happens? Peter answers that. God answers that. There is no what if in God's language. He is sovereign. How long? A little while. Why? So the authenticity of your faith will result in praise and honor and glory when you see Christ's face. What now? Love him. Love him. Rejoice in him. And what's the end result? The salvation of your souls in the last days. All of those questions that go through our mind and suffering, friends, have answers from our sovereign creator, and that is our greatest comfort. I want to end uh, by reading. I didn't get to do this last week, but um, I think we do have enough time this week. I want to read a little excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this is actually the kids' version. Um, we read it with our kids, but it's actually a, a really good kind of summary of Bunyan, and I, I highly recommend it if you have kids. Um, but let me just read. This is um, the picture of Christian hopeful drawing near. Um, and I think it's very applicable here uh, as we consider our future salvation. <clears throat> as Christian and Hopeful drew near the gate, a huge crowd came out to meet them, and two shining ones with Christian and Hopeful explained to the crowd, when these men were in the world, they loved the Lord Jesus and left all for his precious name. Jesus sent us to bring him into the city. How happy they will be to see their wonderful Savior face to face. Everyone gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Others played trumpets. It was a wonderful welcome indeed. And Christian and Hopeful arrived at the gate. These pilgrims have come from the city of destruction. The Shining Ones called out to Moses, Elijah, and other saints lined on the way. They trust and love the king. Then Christian and Hopeful turned in their documents, which were brought to the king, and when the king read them, he told the servants to open the gates and let the pilgrims enter. The gates were opened, and the bells of the city rang with joy. And Christian and Hopeful were given robes that made them shine like the sun. And crowns covered with more sparkling jewels were put on their head. And many more people were waiting, saying, Come, share in our king's happiness, everyone cried. So Christian and Hopeful were brought before the king who was sitting on his throne waiting to receive them, and they, along with all God's people, began to sing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and power and honor forever and ever. And sh they shouted their praises, singing over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. After that, the gates were shut. Everyone in the whole city was glad that Christian and Hopeful had been brought from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Their pilgrim journey was over, and now they were in the presence of their wonderful king forever. Isn't that the hope that we all have to look forward to? No matter when Christ calls us on this earth, as we grieve uh, for those lost, 
This is what you have to look forward to. Christ receives all the glory and all the praise and all the honor and all the suffering in this present life is culminating for the praise of his beloved son, the lavish grace he has poured on you and me that we don't deserve. Thank you, Lord, for your precious gift. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve to be before your throne. We don't deserve anything other than condemnation and wrath. And yet, you have called us your people. You have promised to purify us and present us as a gift even to you. Thank you for Christ. I pray that everyone going forward, everyone in this room, would be filled with this joy even as we experience pain and suffering and death that is not good. It's marks of sin. Yet you are using this and it is necessary for our good and for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest in your sovereignty and your goodness. Thank you for the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. Pray this would fuel us as we go forward into the holidays, into celebrating Christ's birth, that we would remember this and, and just uh, relish in the fact that we have been called your people and saved. Um, thank you for Christ. We praise his name and pray in his name.